The following program contains descriptions of the people and events of the Second World War, descriptions of extreme violence and unaltered quotes, some including adult language, are included in the program. This program may not be suitable for all listeners. Discretion is advised. I don't want to set the world on fire. Welcome to Episode 6 of LeMay's Inferno here on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Carter McNish. This is a seven-part documentary series covering the final months of World War II in the Pacific Theater. Previously, we covered General Curtis LeMay's intensifying bombing campaign against Japan, the strangling of the Japanese Empire by American submarines, the plans for the invasion of Japan, and the Potsdam Conference and Declaration. With the invasion of Japan only three months away, the U.S. military, desperate to avoid such an operation, has one last trick up its sleeve. Today we cover their final gambit, an unholy trinity of explosions that would change the world forever. I just want to be the one you love, and with your admission that you White sands and dark skies. Brown, dehydrated shrubs cover the loose soil, absorbing as much of the rare falling rain as they can. In the early morning darkness, the stars are not visible, only the vague shapes of storm clouds passing overhead. Atop a corrugated steel tower built in the valley between two mountain ranges, a man sits alone in a steel shed built at the top of the tower. The shed protects him from the rain as he reads a book trying to ignore the howling winds and lightning strikes in the desert around him. With every clap of thunder, he freezes, knowing that he is inside the only lightning conductor for miles in every direction, and knowing that the thing next to him is activated with similar amounts of electricity. He knows it because he designed that very feature of the thing. He stares at the hundreds of wires running across the floor of the shed, following them to the singularity at which they all meet, the gadget, as his colleagues call it, Another strike of lightning. His heart skips a beat, and for a moment after, all he can think of is the howling wind and his shivering body. He looks to the side of the shed and the phone mounted on the wall, eagerly anticipating the call from camp, ordering him to leave the tower. Seconds turn into minutes, and minutes turn into hours as he waits. But finally, the call comes. He climbs down the tower and begins to walk back to the camp and to safety. Meanwhile, at the camp, inside a concrete bunker, a number of other men are anxiously watching the tower, but with binoculars. Inside the bunker, hundreds of wires, levers, and switches litter the floor and tables. The men inside await the signal from their leader to activate these levers and switches in a precise order in order to activate the gadget inside the tower. All of these men had devoted years of their lives to the study and creation of the gadget. No one wanted to be the one to destroy their hard work now, on the eve of their greatest triumph. No one knew exactly what would happen. The end of the world? The catastrophe that could kill millions? All they knew was that they had to activate the gadget soon, or else all their hard work would be for naught. As soon as the man in the tower arrived back at the camp, everyone present knew the time had come, and began assembling around some picnic tables that had been placed near the edge of the field where they had parked their cars and trucks, facing the lone steel tower. 30,000 feet above them, a lone B-29 circled the area. It had been sent there to observe the test, but its crew were not hopeful that they would get a good view, as the dense clouds below prevented them from seeing the ground. Nonetheless, the men were packed at the windows with cameras and instruments. As the time they had been briefed about drew closer, they donned welding goggles and braced themselves in their seats. Back in the bunker, the men inside were going over their final sets of checklists, making triple sure that nothing in the thousands of miles of wiring had gone awry. At the picnic tables, the crowd of men also donned welder's goggles, dialing them to their highest setting and made sure of their footing. On the slopes of a mountain over 50 miles away, along a desolate highway that skirted the slopes, a crowd of women in parked cars sat waiting. No one there knew what was going to happen, but their husbands had told them that they would have a great view of something. They all wanted to know what that something was, 
but after three years of cryptic answers and awkward expressions, they had learned it was better not to ask questions. As they watched, they saw the lightning and rain fade away, and soon only the dark clouds above remained. In the bunker, the men looked at one another, nodded silently, and began the final countdown. Over the horizon, the faintest signs of sunlight began to appear, a light blue tint in the sky. However, anyone looking through a camera could still only see pitch black, with barely enough light present between the cloud cover and the lack of moonlight to see what you were doing. In the dim, artificial red light of the bunker, Robert Oppenheimer and his assistants watched their clocks and counted down the seconds, each man laying his hand on some switch or lever, ready to activate them at the right time. On the picnic benches, Enrico Fermi, along with a few other men, placed bets on the outcome, putting good money on the line. Fermi also picked up a newspaper, tore it to shreds, held them in his open palm, and extended his arm outward. He asked a man to stand a few yards behind him and be ready to observe how far the shreds of paper would be blown from his hand. Even though he was little more than a spectator for the moment, his scientific mind was still very much at work. In the bunker, faces grew dimmer as the seconds passed by, minute by minute getting closer to the time which all of the men inside dreaded and anticipated simultaneously. Then, at the one-minute mark, loudspeakers around the camp began to count down the seconds. Everyone watched and waited, staring at the tiny speck of the steel tower in the distance. The speakers blared as a voice counted down from ten. Everyone stared blankly at the tower as the countdown progressed, until finally, the speaker announced one. Then, in that instant, Oppenheimer and the others activated their switches and levers, rapidly and in sequence, before looking out the small viewport towards the tower. Less than a second later, at exactly 5.29 and 21 seconds in the morning, Mountain Wartime, on July 16th, 1945, the gadget and the tower it rested on disappeared. The men in the bunker, the soldiers and scientists in the camp, and the hundreds of bystanders on that faraway mountaintop were instantly blinded by a white flash of light, ten times brighter than the surface of the sun. At the base camp, temperatures soared, and men began to fear for their lives as temperatures rose to over 150 degrees Fahrenheit in an instant. After recovering from the initial flash, the men looked on in horror and in awe as a plume of purple flame soared skyward. The purple light reflected off the clouds, making them also appear purple. For an eerie few seconds after the initial flash, the whole area, and even the mountain many miles away, were lit up as bright as daytime. Robert Oppenheimer, from inside the bunker, looked on in awe at the explosion as the color changed from a surreal purple to an ethereal green, and uttered a phrase from the Hindu scriptures. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Another man had this to say. We're all sons of bitches now. While some still stared at the colorful cloud rising rapidly skyward, many of the men in the bunker and at base camp had something else on their minds. It had only been a few seconds since the explosion began, and they had yet to hear the sound of the explosion. They didn't need to wait long, however, as they saw a wave of air traveling at hundreds of miles per hour across the desert, distorting their view of the sand and brush below. As it approached, Enrico Fermi held out his newspaper shreds and made sure his friend behind him was ready to observe how far they would travel in the first second. Then, all of a sudden, the roar of the explosion filled the air. Before Fermi could even let go, he was knocked off his feet by the blast of air, the shreds of paper flying from his hand and back toward his friend. Fermi regained his balance, ran over to his friend, and asked him to show him how far the shreds had traveled in the first second, but he could hear nothing, not even his own voice, over the sound of the explosion. Fermi grabbed the shreds himself, and pushing back against the roaring winds, walked over to the picnic tables and sat down. His friend ran over and asked what on earth he was doing. Fermi responded that he was measuring the yield of the bomb, before turning to a notebook and pen he had laid down. After making a few calculations, he turned to the group and exclaimed that the bomb had detonated with a force of more than 10,000 tons of TNT. Everyone cheered before turning back to look at the cloud of fire and smoke. Soon they saw, as the cloud soared miles into the sky, that the shockwave had begun to clear out the storm clouds above the rising plume, making a passage for the plume to rise even higher. In the B-29 circling above, 
The men watched in awe as the flash pierced the clouds, followed a minute later by the parting of the clouds and the rising of the plume of fire which had by now turned from green to orange. The men on board took pictures frantically, in between their looks at the plume with their own eyes. The wonder and amazement was soon curtailed, though, when the shockwave reached them. The plane shook violently as the pilot struggled to regain control, the plane losing hundreds of feet in altitude in less than a second. The pilots managed to regain control after a few hectic seconds of major turbulence, but the crew was well and truly shaken up by the experience. The crew returned to the windows to see what was going on. It had barely been two minutes since the detonation had occurred, and the plume had risen past the clouds and was continuing to rise rapidly toward the height of the B-29, at the rate of a few thousand feet per minute. A minute or two passed, and the crew watched in awe as the clouds surpassed them in altitude, eventually rising to over 40,000 feet before leveling out and spreading out to cover a wider area in the stratosphere. By now, most of the light had faded, but the crew watched intently as in the cloud a color show unlike any other unfolded. After the initial shock had faded, those back on the ground began congratulating each other on what they had accomplished. Celebrations abounded, and people began dancing and cheering. It would take a while before they would come to know the full yield of the explosion, but Enrico Fermi's guess had been a major understatement. Instead of Fermi's 10-kiloton measurement, it had in fact been the equivalent of over 18 kilotons worth of TNT. Oppenheimer emerged from his bunker, and after celebrating with the others, picked up the phone. In Washington, D.C., General Leslie Groves, head of the Manhattan Project and architect of the Pentagon, picked up the phone on the other end. A few minutes later, after yelling at Oppenheimer for calling him late, Groves sets down the phone, relieved. The scientists out in Alagamordo, New Mexico, had done it. They had successfully built and tested the world's first atomic bomb. Meanwhile, in San Francisco Harbor, the USS Indianapolis waits for orders. Made ready for sale, her captain waits only for a phone call to leave. In his cabin, welded to the floor, is a mysterious metal box with a secret cargo contained within. The captain knows not what it is. All he knows is that he must transport it to Tinian, along with the contents of a number of crates stored in the Indianapolis's hold, held under armed guard. As the sun peeks over the horizon, the phone rings, and the captain answers. A few minutes later, the Indianapolis casts off and sails under the Golden Gate Bridge and out into the vast Pacific. She sails unescorted and off the record so as to avoid being tracked by Japanese intelligence. The only people who know her destination are her captain, a select few officers on Tinian, and General Groves, supervisor of the Manhattan Project back in Washington. The Indianapolis sails alone and at close to top speed so as to reach Tinian as soon as possible. She is also under orders to maintain strict radio silence so as not to give Japanese intelligence officers any information on her whereabouts or mission. Having left San Francisco on the 19th of July, she arrived at Honolulu in Hawaii for a midway stop in 72 and a half hours, setting the record time for that journey in the process, averaging a speed of 29 knots. After picking up some supplies, she set out for Tinian, arriving there a week later on July 26th. Special groups of Army personnel with armed escorts met USS Indianapolis at the dock and unloaded her precious cargo. The metal box welded to the captain's stateroom floor was removed and taken, with the other crates, to a special compound which had been recently constructed to the north of North Field on Tinian, directly across from Runway Abel. It was there where it was passed from the hands of the Navy into the hands of the 509th Composite Group, led by Colonel Paul Tibbetts. The 509th had been organized about a year earlier, while the bomb was still only a paper weapon. They were given a squadron of modified B-29 superfortresses known as Silver Plates, which had been modified to have enough space in the bomb bay to store the large atomic bombs. The mission of the B-29 squadron in the 509th was to train on how to deploy a nuclear weapon in combat. The rest of the squadrons in the group consisted of transport and cargo aircraft, hence the designation composite as opposed to bombardment or pursuit like other groups. This was done so that the 509th could be entirely self-sufficient with regard to supplies in order to minimize contact with other organizations as much as possible to maintain secrecy. The compound to which the crates and metal box had been taken was specially built to house the 509th's personnel and aircraft and was segregated from the rest of the base. As a bonus to it being built later than most of the facilities on the island, the entire facility was equipped with air conditioners, a rare luxury in the Marianas. The 509th had trained for months at Wendover Army Air Base in Utah on how to deploy atomic weapons. Incidentally, Wendover is also where Curtis LeMay began his meteoric rise through the ranks, as it was there where he trained his first bomb group before deploying to England in 1943. 
The 509th used a special tactic for their attacks, designed by a group of engineers working on the bomb in order to ensure the safety of the crews from the bombs they would be unleashing on the enemy. The B-29 would fly in at very high altitude, over 30,000 feet. After releasing the weapon, they would simultaneously make a hard right-hand turn and bank downward in order to gain speed. They would turn about 160 degrees and lose between two and 3,000 feet of elevation in the maneuver, but the loss of altitude allowed the B-29s to maintain high speed throughout the turn. The B-29 would then level out at the end of the turn and at full power fly away as fast as it could from the expected point of detonation. With the bomb falling from around 30,000 feet, it would take approximately 45 seconds for the bomb to reach its detonation altitude of 1,850 feet, a small margin for error. If the pilot could not perform this maneuver exactly as planned and in as little time as possible, the plane could very well be taken down by the shockwave of the blast. The maneuver, however, was difficult for even a nimble two-engine bomber to perform, let alone the largest plane in Army service at the time. The B-29 was many things, but maneuverable was not one of them. It would take the most skilled bomber pilots in the Army to perform such a difficult feat of flying. Fortunately for General Groves and the scientists of the Manhattan Project, the Army had chosen the right men for the job. All of the pilots and airmen chosen to serve in the 509th were selected for their superb combat experience. Almost all of the pilots had flown over 50 combat missions, with some even seeing numbers of close to 70 combat missions over Europe, even though the required number of missions was only 25. The pilots had seen everything the German Luftwaffe had to offer, and had the most flight hours of any bomber pilots in the United States. On top of all that, as they trained at Wendover, they added hundreds more hours of flight time in the modified silver plate B-29s to their logbooks, making them some of the most experienced B-29 pilots in the Air Force, even more so than some of the men based in the Marianas flying combat missions over Japan. By the time they received the USS Indianapolis's top-secret cargo, these men had even flown practice missions with dummy bombs over Japan, and the potentially life-saving aerial maneuver was as familiar to them as the multiplication table. When the crates and metal box from the USS Indianapolis arrived at the 509th's compound, they were taken to a concrete building equipped with blast doors, which had no windows and only a few electric lights to illuminate the interior. It was in this facility in which the contents of the crates, bomb components, and of the metal box, two uranium cores, were unpacked and assembled into an atomic bomb. The bomb was nicknamed Little Boy because of its thin design, originally having been given the name Thin Man by its creator. As soon as this was completed a few days later, LeMay, Groves, President Truman, and the 509th's leader Paul Tibbetts were informed. The bomb was ready. The only question left to these men now was when and how to use it. While the bomb was being assembled and the top brass of the military and government were debating over how to use them, the USS Indianapolis departed Tinian, bound for Guam. She arrived there the next day, and some of her crew were discharged from the ship's company as they had completed their tours of duty. After these losses were replaced with new recruits from the U.S., Indianapolis departed Guam bound for the island of Leyte in the Philippines. Officially, she had never actually visited the Marianas, and she was still sailing without escort and under strict radio silence. Only a few officers on Leyte were aware of her pending arrival, the rest being forbidden to know because of the need for continued secrecy. Until Indianapolis arrived at Leyte, the Navy needed to make it appear like she had never existed. After departing Guam on July 28th, Indianapolis entered the Philippine Sea steaming at full speed, heading directly for Leyte. She sailed for two days with no incident, but then, early in the morning on July 30th, disaster struck. At 12.15 a.m., two Type 95 Long Lance torpedoes fired from the Japanese submarine I-58 struck the ship. One detonated directly on the bow, the other detonating amidships, both on Indianapolis's starboard side. The ship had been taking all measures deemed necessary by U.S. doctrine to avoid submarine attack, but the captain of the I-58 had made a very lucky shot. The torpedo that struck the bow blew the entire bow plate off, opening the front of the ship to the ocean. With the ship sailing at full speed, water began to be rapidly funneled through the opening and into the ship, the speed increasing the rate of flooding. Indianapolis's captain, Charles B. McVeigh, attempted to slow the flooding by ordering the ship into full reverse, but the phone lines had been cut by the second torpedo's strike amidships, and so the men in the engine room increased speed instead, as was standard practice for submarine attacks. Instead of helping, this action by the boiler room crew doomed the ship, causing the Indianapolis to swallow even more water into her interior compartments. The ship soon began to list heavily to starboard, and her captain, realizing Indianapolis's dire situation, ordered the crew to abandon ship. Indianapolis began to sink rapidly, the list increasing by the second. 
With few lifeboats and only a couple dozen life rafts, the crew was mostly forced to jump overboard with little more than their life vests, if they even had time in the rapidly flooding ship to grab those. Twelve minutes after the first torpedo struck, it was all over, the ship having capsized and sunk by the bow, taking 300 of her 1,195 crew with her. The remaining 895 were either clinging to lifeboats and life rafts, or treading water in the cold waters of the Central Pacific. As the sun dawned, the number of survivors had shrunk even more, with many of the men without life jackets having already exhausted their strength and drowned. The rest, including Captain McVeigh, who had been thrown overboard by explosions during the sinking, clung to life rafts as their life vests had started to become ineffective. As the hot July day wore on, thousands of sea creatures began to arrive on the scene, as they often do when a ship goes down. Among this assortment of creatures from the deep were hundreds of sharks. After the fish had sorted through all the flotsam that had risen to the surface after the sinking, the hungry sharks began looking for other sources of food, and the struggling survivors of Indianapolis's crew were the perfect hunting ground. As the crew of the Indianapolis awaited rescue, they could only hope was coming, as there had been little time to send a distress signal during the sinking, sharks picked off the survivors one by one. Men clinging to the rafts looked on in the water below them, and to their horror saw dozens of sharks circling below, looking for their next meal. Men watched as they saw their friends, some being right next to them, being dragged down into the deep by the sharks. For three days, the crew hoped and prayed for deliverance, as slowly, through malnutrition, killer sharks, and exhaustion, more and more crewmen joined their 300 other comrades in the deep. Finally, on August 2nd, a Navy PBY Catalina flying boat spotted the survivors and began the rescue. The first few men were rescued by this craft, then more and more as additional PBYs and other rescue craft arrived on the scene. A few brave souls volunteered to be the last to be rescued, choosing to brave the shark-infested waters for longer to spare the lives of their fellow crewmen. By the next morning, all of the remaining men had been rescued, Captain McVeigh, acting in accordance with maritime tradition, being the last to be rescued. In total, only 316 of the 1,195 crew of USS Indianapolis survived the sinking, almost 600 of them being killed by the sharks. It was the deadliest single sinking in U.S. Navy history, and the deadliest known shark attack ever to occur. Captain McVeigh, although innocent, would be tried and convicted of negligence of duty, and used as a scapegoat for the disaster. He would later commit suicide because of the torrent of angry letters from bereaved family members he received, blaming him for their son's deaths. He would be posthumously pardoned by President Clinton. Meanwhile, in the halls of power of the U.S. military, the debate on the bombs had shifted from if to use the bomb to how to use the bomb. It was the consensus of the military high command that if they possessed such a weapon, it would be a disservice to the American people not to use it in an effort to save the lives of their countrymen in the military. One of the only high-ranking officials that argued not to use the bomb was Curtis LeMay himself, as he argued that his firebombing campaign was already achieving similar results, and that it would not be worth leaking knowledge to this weapon to the Russians. He had no moral qualms about using the bombs, only strategic concerns. LeMay did not know, but his concerns were too little too late, as even the day after the Trinity test, Stalin had been informed by spies he had placed in the Manhattan Project team that the U.S. had successfully tested an atomic bomb. President Truman was provided with a plethora of theories as to how to best use the bomb. One idea that circulated was to demonstrate the power of the bomb by dropping it on an uninhabited island within sight of the Japanese coastline. This was rejected as a waste of money, and on the grounds that the Japanese were not likely to surrender should the bomb be used in this way. Another option floated by Washington officials was to drop it on a tactical target, such as a large military force or base. This too was rejected because it lacked the desired effect of demoralizing the population and precipitating a surrender. What the U.S. and Allies wanted was nothing but complete and unconditional surrender, and only a huge shock to the Japanese public could perhaps convince Japan's leaders that continuing the war was futile. It was decided then that a compromise would be used instead. The bomb would be dropped in a Japanese city, but one of great military importance. This would both cause great shock among the Japanese population and render useless a strategic military target. Truman was given a list of targets and chose the city of Hiroshima as the first target of the atomic weapons. Hiroshima and the adjacent city of Kure housed Japan's largest naval base, and it was one of the few cities that had not yet been attacked by LeMay during the firebombing campaign. In fact, LeMay had been ordered not to bomb Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and a few other cities in order to leave them as targets for the atom bombs. LeMay was also ordered not to bomb the historic city of Kyoto, but this was done because Henry Stimson, American Secretary of War, had previously visited the city in peacetime, which used to be the imperial capital, and ordered it preserved so as not to completely destroy Japanese culture and history. 
With Hiroshima chosen as the target, and the necessary authorizations given by President Truman, it was now down to Paul Tibbetts and the 509th Composite Group on Tinian to conduct the mission, the name of Tibbetts' mother soon to become a household name. The date for the mission to Hiroshima was set for the morning of August 6, 1945. Six aircraft were chosen to take part in the mission. Three of the six planes were assigned to fly out ahead of the strike force in order to observe local weather conditions and to identify which of the three targets, Hiroshima being the primary, with Nagasaki and Kokura being the secondaries, had the ideal weather for an attack. Straight Flush, piloted by Major Claude Etherly, would watch the weather over Hiroshima. Jabot 3, piloted by Major John Wilson, would observe the weather over Kokura. And Full House, piloted by Major Ralph Taylor, would scout out Nagasaki. The three remaining planes, of which only one had yet been named, would form the actual strike package, one carrying the bomb itself, and the other two carrying cameras, scientists, and instruments to calculate the yield of the bomb and to make other measurements. The only named plane, the Great Artiste, piloted by Major Charles Sweeney, had gained the name because of the stunning accuracy of its bombardier, Captain Kermit Bean. However, the Great Artiste had not been chosen to lead the strike group. That honor would fall to the B-29 serial number 44-86292, ordinarily piloted by Captain Robert Lewis, but for the bombing mission, would be piloted by the 509th's commander, Colonel Paul Tibbetts. Tibbetts wanted to personally make sure that the mission was a success. The other B-29, serial number 44-86291, piloted by Captain George Marquardt, would later be named Necessary Evil. As the crews prepared themselves for the August 6th mission, all eyes were firmly fixed on Tibbetts. Tibbetts, however, because he had learned how to perform the evasive maneuver needed to dodge the shockwave enough so that he could do it in his sleep, was not thinking much about the actual bombing itself. Instead, he was thinking of what kind of legacy he wanted to leave behind. Tibbetts knew, as did the crew of the yet unnamed plane they would be flying, that whichever name they chose for the plane would become one of the most recognizable names in the history of warfare. Tibbetts, although he did not tell the crew this, had no intention of letting this opportunity go to waste, and decided that he himself would name the plane. As the days passed by and the mission drew closer and closer, the crew of the plane thought of what they wanted to name it. The mission was due to begin in the early morning hours of August 6th, as the B-29s would have to begin their journey to Hiroshima that night in order to arrive over the target shortly after sunrise. As the morning of August 6th began, the crew of the plane had finally decided on a name and proceeded to their aircraft in the midnight darkness in order to paint it on the fuselage. Unfortunately for them, the crew discovered to their horror that Tibbets had beaten them to the punch. Very late in the evening on August 5th, Tibbetts had ordered maintenance man Private Nelson Miller to go out to the plane and paint the name Enola Gay on the nose under the pilot seat in plain black letters. To Tibbetts' delight and the crew's consternation, the plane would forever be known to history as the Enola Gay, the name of Paul Tibbetts' mother, Enola Gay Tibbetts. As August 5th ended and August 6th began, last-minute preparations for the mission ahead were being completed. At around midnight, the three B-29s chosen as weather scouts took off and began their overnight journeys to the Empire so that they would arrive over the three selected targets a couple hours before the strike force. At around the same time, dozens of cameramen and hundreds of reporters began descending on the 509th Composite Group's compound, everyone wanting to get a glimpse of the bomb they hoped would end the war. They watched as Tibbetts and his crew boarded Enola Gay and taxied over to a six-foot deep pit in the tarmac. At the bottom of this pit was the atomic bomb Little Boy. As the bomb was too large to be dollied under the plane, the only remaining solution had been to use such a method to raise the bomb into place in Enola Gay's bomb bay. Tibbetts, in the pilot seat, ordered the engines to be shut down while the bomb was raised in order to avoid having the shaking of the airframe interfere with the loading procedures. This also allowed the cameraman to get a very close view of the whole process. The crew of Enola Gay for this historic mission are as follows. Colonel Paul Tibbetts was the pilot and aircraft commander. Captain Robert Lewis, Enola Gay's regularly assigned aircraft commander, was the co-pilot. Major Thomas Fearby was the all-important bombardier. Captain Theodore Dutch Van Kirk was the navigator. Captain William Deke Parsons, U.S. Navy, was the weaponier and mission commander. He was the only Navy man on board any of the planes, and he was the man responsible for arming the bomb. He had the authority to make the final call on any aspect of the mission. First Lieutenant Jacob Besser was the radar countermeasures operator. Second Lieutenant Morris R. Jepson was the assistant weaponier. Staff Sergeant Robert Bob Karen was the tail gunner. He had been given a movie camera, as he would have the best view of the detonation. Staff Sergeant Wyatt E. Dusenberry was the flight engineer, in charge of Enola Gay's engines and fuel supplies. Sergeant Joe S. Stiberick 
was the radar operator. Sergeant Robert H. Schumard was the assistant flight engineer. And finally, Private First Class Richard Nelson was the VHF radio operator. While all the men on board knew that they would be deploying an entirely new and very powerful bomb, only Paul Tibbetts and Deke Parsons, the weaponeer, knew that it was an atomic bomb they would be using. After Little Boy had been loaded into the bomb bay, Tibbetts walked back toward the bomb bay and began an important discussion with Parsons. The topic? Whether or not to arm the bomb on the ground before takeoff or in the air afterward. If they were to arm the bomb in flight, Parsons would have to enter the bomb bay and, without any handholds other than the radioactive bomb, perform the complex arming procedure. If they arm the bomb on the ground, though, avoiding this danger, should Enola Gay crash on takeoff, which was not unlikely because of the extreme weight she was carrying, she would crash with an armed nuclear weapon, which would likely set the bomb off, vaporizing Enola Gay and destroying almost all of the facilities on Tinian. It was decided after a few tense moments that Parsons would arm the bomb in flight. Should he lose his balance while arming the bomb and fall into the bomb bay, the closed bomb bay doors would not be able to support his weight, and he would fall thousands of feet to his death. Wearing a parachute was not an option because of the confines of the bomb bay. Parsons would be putting his life very much on the line, but he chose to arm the bomb in the air anyway, rather than risk catastrophe. After the bomb was loaded and the decision to arm it in flight reached, Tibbetts returned to the cockpit, stuck his head out the window, and waved to the reporters for their pictures. He then ordered flight engineer Duesenberry to power up the engines. Enola Gay taxied from the bomb-loading pit to runway Abel on Tinian's north field, the runway illuminated by dozens of floodlights so that the reporters could get plenty of good photos of the historic takeoff. Her accompanying B-29's great artiste and soon-to-be necessary evil filed in alongside her on runways Bravo and Charlie. Enola Gay would take off first, followed in rapid succession by the remaining two. Tibbetts parked Enola Gay at the end of the runway, engaged all of the brakes, and ordered Duesenberry to give her full throttle. Tibbetts waited for the engines to spool up to maximum power before disengaging the brakes. Enola Gay, weighing well over the recommended takeoff weight for a B-29, began lumbering down runway Abel, slowly gathering speed. The plane tumbled down the runway, bouncing and bumping as the crew anxiously waited for the plane to loose the shackles of the ground. With only a few hundred feet to go before the runway ended and the ocean began, Nola Gay lurched upward and into the sky, the bumping and shaking stopping, giving way to the smooth rush of the warm August air. In the darkness, she was joined by Great Artiste and the as-yet-unnamed Necessary Evil. The three of them turned north toward Hiroshima. The three bombers proceeded individually toward their assigned rally point of Iwo Jima. They would rally there as they could not safely do so in the dark over Tinian and by the time they would reach Iwo, the first rays of sunshine would illuminate the pre-dawn sky enough to make slotting into formation possible. Enola Gay reached her temporary cruising altitude a few minutes after takeoff, and Tibbetts, finding a calm patch of air, gave weaponeer Deke Parsons the signal to arm the bomb. Parsons opened up the pressure hatch leading to the bomb bay, and, one foot after the other, then ducking under with his head, entered the bomb bay through the two-foot-tall entrance. Finding his balance on the six-inch-wide platform on the bomb bay side of the door, he reached over in the dark and found the six plugs that he would need to arm the bomb. One by one, he put three red and three green arming plugs in their corresponding spots. As he did so, the plane shook because of the power of the engines and wobbled because of the air currents. After a couple minutes, which felt like hours, Parsons had successfully armed the bomb. He gingerly stepped back through the hatch and into the cockpit area, covered in sweat. The Navy man had done his job. Now it was time for the Army to do theirs. Enola Gay continued on her course towards Iwo Jima, arriving over the island at 5.55 a.m. Enola Gay, Great Artiste, and Necessary Evil rendezvoused over the island, and were soon on their way toward Japan. As they approached the Japanese coastline, Richard Nelson listened on the radio, making sure he didn't miss any transmissions from the scout planes. At around 7 a.m., Nelson picked up a transmission from Straight Flush, the B-29 assigned to scout the weather over Hiroshima. Straight Flush had arrived there just a few minutes prior. Nelson decoded the message. Cloud cover less than three-tenths at all altitudes. Advice? Bomb primary. Meanwhile in Hiroshima, as straight flush began circling overhead, the air raid sirens began sounding, waking many of the sleeping inhabitants and annoying everyone who was at that moment on their way to work. Aside from that, though, no one was particularly worried about a bombing raid. Hiroshima had never been hit by a major raid. At this point, everyone thought that Bison, the nickname they had given the B-29, didn't think Hiroshima was worth bombing. An hour later, 
just after 8 a.m., the strike group reached Hiroshima. While still a few minutes out from the target and over Japan's inland sea, Great Artiste and Necessary Evil broke formation with Enola Gay and began flying towards opposite sides of the city in order to get a good view for the photos and to get separate measurements of the blast. Enola Gay, meanwhile, slowed down to allow the other planes to get in position, but remained on her course, heading directly for the city center of Hiroshima. Hiroshima lies in the delta of the Ota River, where it splits into many subsidiary streams that each flow separately into Japan's inland sea. The city is spread out across the many islands created by the delta, the city center approximately located at one of the spots where the Ota splits in the delta. At this point, there is a unique bridge, unlike any other in Hiroshima. It was shaped like a T, one side leading to the island on the west bank, another leading to the island on the east bank, and the last connecting the main part of the bridge with the island to the south that creates the split. This three-directional bridge was identified by the Americans as an ideal aim point, as it was both obvious and marked almost exactly the center of the city. Hiroshima was also surrounded by a semicircular chain of hills and mountains created by the Ota River Valley. These hills would serve as a blast shield, both protecting the surrounding area from the blast and also reflecting the shockwave back onto the city, maximizing the damage. By 8.09 a.m., Great Artiste and Necessary Evil were in position around the city, and Paul Tibbetts began Enola Gay's bomb run. The bombardier Thomas Fearby, through his Norton bomb site, was in control of the plane. He made small course adjustments as he zeroed in on his target, the Ioi Bridge. Tibbetts ordered the flight engineer, Wyatt Duesenbury, to put the engines on full throttle to maximize the speed for the coming turn. Tibbetts, tightly gripping the controls, awaited the bombs away shout from Fearby. Fearby, his eyes glued to the bomb site, made some last minute calculations. He flipped the switch to open the bomb bay doors, as through the pressure hull the crew could hear the air rushing into the open bomb bay. Fearby watched the city of Hiroshima pass through his sights, constantly zooming in and out to make sure the plane was on course. Finally, as Enola Gay approached the T-shaped bridge, he zoomed in for the final time. He waited for his crosshairs to line up directly with the middle of the bridge before throwing the release switch. Enola Gay suddenly shot up over a hundred feet in altitude because of the loss of weight as Fearby screamed bombs away. Instantaneously, Tibbetts flipped the switch which returned control of the plane to him. Tibbetts grabbed the controls and with all his might threw Enola Gay into a sharp downward right turn. The crew grabbed onto anything they could in order to avoid getting tossed to the left side of the plane because of the G-forces. Anything left unfastened fell off the desks as pens, pencils, and other bits and pieces of navigation equipment hit the floor and slid to the left side of the plane. Tibbetts and his co-pilot, Captain Robert Lewis, both pulled back as hard as they could on the control sticks in order to maximize the turn, as this was in the age before power steering. As Enola Gay turned, the bomb slowly began gaining speed as it fell toward the ground. Upon release, a 30-second timer inside the bomb had begun ticking. Once this timer had completed, it would automatically activate the bomb's internal radar system. The radar would then track the ground as the bomb approached. Once the bomb had reached the desired detonation altitude of 1,850 feet, the radar would trigger the firing mechanism. When it did so, a cannon inside the bomb would fire a two-pound charge of gunpowder, sending the uranium core at the rear of the bomb flying toward the uranium core at the front at hundreds of miles per hour. Once the two cores struck each other, the cores would fuse and go critical, the atoms beginning to split apart rapidly in a nuclear chain reaction, releasing immense amounts of energy. Because of the volatility of the enriched uranium, this reaction would occur in an instant, all the energy being released at once in an atomic explosion. As the 30-second mark since bomb release hit, and the radar and Little Boy activated, it found Enola Gay having just completed her turn. Now Tibbetts was trying to keep Enola Gay as straight and level as he could, as the superfortress sped away from the blast area at over 300 miles per hour. The airframe shook and groaned because of the immense forces acting on her, but that was the least of Paul Tibbetts' concerns. Each of the crewmen on board Enola Gay and the other planes donned welder's goggles in order to protect their eyes from the flash of the bomb. Tibbetts had only told the crew about the nature of their bomb an hour earlier, and no one wanted to take any chances with their eyesight. In the tail gunner's seat, Bob Karen, barely able to see through his welder's goggles on full tint, started filming and pointed the camera as best he could where he thought the explosion would happen. Enola Gay continued flying away as fast as she could until 44.4 seconds after release. Little Boy went critical at 8.16 a.m., August 6, 1945. Only 1.7% of the bomb's 64 kilograms of uranium actually fissioned before the energy released vaporized the rest. The crew of Enola Gay, Great Artiste, and Necessary Evil, even through their welder's goggles, were blinded by the flash of light from the bomb for the first moments. A few seconds later, Karen, 
with the closest view of the bomb, was able to point his camera at the brightest spot he could discern through his goggles. A few seconds after that, the light had dissipated enough for a few brave souls to remove their eye protection. They looked on in awe as a mushroom cloud rose from the ground, only a few seconds after detonation having soared thousands of feet high. Bob Karen also took off his goggles and spied a sheet of air moving rapidly away from the hypocenter. He could follow its movement through the distortion of the air and warned Tibbets and the crew of Anola Gay to strap in and brace for it. It was because of the shock wave that Tibbets had performed the maneuver, not because of the flash of the heat. Tibbets and the crew of the Anola Gay had to hope that their head start of 11.5 miles was enough to allow the shock wave ample time to dissipate. Finally, the shock wave hit them. The plane shook violently for a few seconds as the crew experienced some of the worst turbulence of their lives. Tibbets described it as being like an extremely close burst of AAA. The airframe groaned as the plane was tossed and turned, but after a few seconds the air grew calm again. Extremely calm. With the shockwave out of the way, the crew could now simply watch in awe as the destruction unfolded below. The city had been completely leveled, save for a couple lucky buildings, for over a mile from the hypocenter. The bomb had been blown 800 feet off course by the wind, detonating directly over the Shima Surgical Clinic. For over four miles from the blast, fire started instantly because of the heat generated. Save for less than a dozen lucky souls, everyone within a mile of the blast perished, those nearest the bomb being vaporized. The Ioe Bridge, while remaining intact, was bleached a lighter color because of the immense light. Spots on the bridge where people had been standing were less bleached, as before their bodies had been vaporized they had temporarily blocked the light from the bomb, leaving outlines of less bleached concrete behind. These outlines would come to be known as atomic shadows. It is estimated that 66,000 people were killed in the explosion, with tens of thousands more dying from wounds and a couple thousand after that of radiation. Hiroshima's population before the bombing was only 350,000. In total, five square miles of the city were destroyed. After taking plenty of pictures and videos to use as evidence, the strike force departed the area and began the return journey to Tinian. The crews reported they could clearly see the mushroom cloud even hundreds of miles away as it rose into the stratosphere. A few hours later, at around noon, Enola Gay, great artiste and necessary evil, landed on Tinian and Enola Gay was greeted by a crowd of excited reporters. The crew of the first plane to deploy an atomic weapon were barraged with questions and requests for photos, every reporter wanting to be the one to tell his readers exactly what one of the men on board the plane had to say about the mission. Meanwhile, Tibbets, after answering a few questions and taking some photos, proceeded back to the compound to report to LeMay and Groves on the results of the mission. Both generals were impressed, and a second mission was authorized. By now, a second bomb, a plutonium bomb of the same design as the one detonated in the Trinity test, had arrived on Tinian, and was at that time being assembled. The original plan had been to drop this bomb five days later, on August 11th. But after the success of the mission to Hiroshima, they decided to speed up the timetable and drop the second bomb, nicknamed Fat Man, both for its appearance and resemblance of the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, on August 9th, three days away. Shortly after the news of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima began to spread throughout the world, President Truman made a speech to the American people, which also contained a warning to Japan's leaders. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many-fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. We are now prepared to destroy more rapidly and completely every productive enterprise the Japanese have in any city. We shall destroy their docks, their factories, and their communications. Let there be no mistake, we shall completely destroy Japan's power to make war. 
it was to spare the Japanese people from utter destruction that the ultimatum of July the 26th was issued at Potsdam. Their leaders promptly rejected that ultimatum. If they do not now accept our terms, they may expect a rain of ruin from the air, the like of which has never been seen on this earth. Behind this air attack will follow sea and land forces in such numbers and power as they have not yet seen and with the fighting skill of which they are already well aware. If Japan did not surrender soon, it would once again face the fury of an atomic weapon. For the second mission, Tibbetts selected the B-29 named Boxcar to carry the bomb. He assigned Major Robert Sweeney and the crew from the Great Artiste to man the plane. The Great Artiste himself, Captain Kermit Bean, would be the bombardier for the mission, the nickname having come from his reputation for accuracy. Accompanying Boxcar as part of the strike force would be the B-29's The Great Artiste, flown by the crew that normally flew Boxcar, led by Captain Frederick Bach, and the B-29 Big Stink, piloted by Major James Hopkins. The target for the second mission was the city of Kokura, which sat astride the Shimonoseki Strait, Japan's busiest waterway, and was one of Japan's major ports. Like the first mission, two B-29s would fly out ahead of the strike group in order to scout the weather. Enola Gay, piloted by Captain George Marquardt, would scout out Kokura, the primary target, and Lagan Dragon, piloted by Captain Charles McKnight, would scout out Nagasaki, the secondary target. August 7th and 8th passed by with no word from the Japanese authorities about any possible surrender. So early on the morning of August 9th, Boxcar, with Major Sweeney at the controls, loaded up with fuel and the bomb. During her pre-flight checks, maintenance personnel found out that due to a fuel pump failure, 640 gallons of fuel would not be able to be used. Sweeney decided to carry on with the mission anyway, as more often than not, the B-29s returned to base with over a thousand gallons of unused fuel. However, Tippett's ordered Sweeney not to waste any time on the mission. If her accompanying planes did not show up for the rendezvous, Sweeney was ordered to carry on without them. With less fanfare than before, Boxcar taxied out onto runway Abel, followed by the Great Artiste and Big Stink onto runways Bravo and Charlie, before the three planes took off into the darkness bound for Kokura, Enola Gay and Lagan Dragon having taken off a couple hours before. A few hours later, Boxcar arrived at the rendezvous point. The strike group had been ordered to rally over Yakushima Island, south of Kyushu, but when Boxcar arrived, she only found the Great Artiste, and not Big Stink. Against the orders of Tibbets, Sweeney circled with the Great Artiste over Yakushima for 45 minutes, burning precious fuel. When Big Stink still didn't appear, the crews decided to carry on to Kokura without her. While Boxcar had been circling, Enola Gay reported that the weather over Kokura was good, but because of the delay, when Boxcar finally got there, some smoke from a nearby firebombing raid by LeMay's superforts had covered Kokura. Sweeney maneuvered Boxcar into three bombing runs, but because they had been ordered not to drop if they couldn't visually confirm the target, all three of the runs were aborted due to the cloud cover. At this point, Sweeney and the crew had to make a decision. They were running critically low on fuel. If they did not turn back now, they would not be able to land on Tinian. But if they did abort, they would risk landing with an armed nuclear weapon. Dropping the bomb by radar was not an option. After much deliberation, Sweeney decided to divert to the secondary target, Nagasaki, drop the bomb there, and make an emergency landing on Okinawa, which was now in American hands. Kokura had been spared the wrath of Fat Man. Half an hour of flying later, Boxcar and the Great Artiste arrived over Nagasaki, where, to their dismay, they found yet more cloud cover. Sweeney lined Boxcar up for another bomb run, but Kermit Bean, the bombardier, couldn't find a gap in the clouds big enough to slot his bomb into. By now, the fuel situation was so desperate that Sweeney and the crew decided to bomb by radar, against the orders of their commanders. Sweeney lined Boxcar up for a second time on a bomb run over Nagasaki. Bean, still hoping to find a spot to put his bomb in between the clouds, continued to make calculations while the radar bombsite operator prepared to drop the bomb. It looked as though orders were going to have to be disobeyed until Bean spotted a gap in the cloud cover just big enough to identify the target. While the gap was not over the intended hypocenter, Sweeney and the crew agreed that they should bomb visually if they could, and bombardier Kermit Bean once again had control of the plane. He lined up his shot, placed his crosshairs in the middle of the gap, and sent the bomb hurtling earthward. Sweeney jammed the controls into the right-hand downward turn that he had practiced as the crew braced for the shockwave. Forty-four seconds later, Fat Man detonated over Nagasaki. The hypocenter was directly over the Catholic Urakami Cathedral, 
that neighborhood of Nagasaki being one of the largest Christian communities in Japan. At the time of the detonation, the church was in the middle of a service. Everyone inside was killed. On top of those in the church, another 40,000 people were killed by the blast. Because of the aim point being off, the bomb had detonated in a small valley, the walls of the valley shielding large portions of Nagasaki from the blast wave. As opposed to Hiroshima, where most of the city had been destroyed, only 66% of Nagasaki was destroyed. Boxcar didn't stay around long, and in minutes she had begun her journey to Okinawa, critically low on fuel. When Boxcar arrived over the island, she had only enough fuel for one landing attempt, so Sweeney turned Boxcar in for a high-speed landing. As Boxcar approached the runway, one of her engines became fuel-starved and sputtered out. Coming in fast and only on three engines, Boxcar slammed into the pavement at the end of the runway and began her landing roll. Sweeney and his co-pilot Hugh Ferguson stood on the brakes as she rolled down the runway, trying their best to slow her down. As Boxcar approached the end of the runway, Sweeney made the decision to make a last-minute hard turn into the taxiway. Sweeney told the crew to brace themselves as he swerved the plane, still going at 40 miles per hour into the taxiway at the end of the runway. Miraculously, Boxcar didn't flip over as her crew were jammed into the wall by the rapid turn. With engines coughing due to lack of fuel, Sweeney had successfully landed the beleaguered Boxcar. Later that day, after refueling, Boxcar finally made it back to Tinian. Tibbets chewed out Sweeney for disobeying orders and staying at the rendezvous point longer than he could afford. Sweeney was silent. LeMay was flown up to Tinian and personally chewed out Sweeney. LeMay stared at Sweeney. You f***ed up, didn't you, Chuck? Sweeney was silent. LeMay decided Sweeney had learned his lesson and walked off. Sweeney would later become a major general in the Air Force. After the bombing of Nagasaki, there were no bombs left, but the U.S. was capable of producing a new plutonium core every three weeks, and the newest core was almost ready. Tibbetts sent a couple B-29s back to the U.S. in order to pick up the core and to take it to the Marianas as soon as it was ready. The tentative date for the third atomic bombing of Japan being set for August 27th, 1945. The likely target? Kokura. Meanwhile, in the Japanese Imperial Headquarters, a fierce debate was underway. After two atomic bomb blasts in two cities, some of the Japanese leaders saw the writing on the wall and had begun advocating for surrender. Most, though, wanted Japan to die a warrior's death in the same way millions of her sons had during the war on battlefields across Asia. Death before dishonor was the philosophy. But as this debate was ongoing, another piece of news reached the Japanese leaders. On August 9th, the same day Nagasaki exploded, and the three-month anniversary of the end of the war in Europe, the Russians invaded Manchuria. That's all for this episode of LeMay's Inferno, here on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I've been your host, Carter McNish. Join us next time as we discuss the final chapter in the bloodiest war in human history, the Soviet invasion of Manchuria, the deliberations between the Japanese leaders, the attempted assassination of Emperor Hirohito, and the final surrender of the Japanese aboard the battleship USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay. <laughs>